We're going to kick off uh, our time over the summer. So we'll spend 10 to 12 weeks uh, working through some of the Psalms. And so we're going to be in Psalm 1 today. We'll worship the Lord through the reading and preaching and hearing of his word. When you find it in your Bible, say amen. Let me know you got it. It's a privilege to have the scriptures, but to also open them and to read them word by word that we would see that these are not the words of a man in the pulpit, but this is the word of a living God, and it's living. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man or woman who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night, and he is like a tree planted by streams of water, that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and all that he does he prospers. But the wicked are not so, they are like chaff that the wind drives away, and therefore the wicked will not stand in judgment, in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray. Our Father, you remind us through your Son that you will leave us your Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of the Father, to be our teacher, the very Spirit who carried men along as they wrote your Holy Word, which is alive. We pray for that same Spirit to empower the reading and preaching and hearing and doing and believing of the living Word of God. So do this, Father, for your glory, your honor, for the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. In 2011, there was an article published by the New York Times, and it was on this topic of decision-making fatigue. And you can imagine what decision-making fatigue is, because decision-making fatigue works a lot like muscle fatigue. That it's, it's un, You can't debate the fact that as you exert and use your muscles over time, they get fatigued and you become weaker and your ability to lift stronger weights or to do these uh, physically demanding tasks that it diminishes. But what, what scientists have discovered is the human brain works the same way, that as it makes decision after decision after decision after decision, that fatigue starts to set in and your judgment and decision-making ability becomes more difficult and clouded. One of the most popular studies, you can check out several of these that, were, that helps them arrive at this conclusion, but it has to do with, with inmates who, who are in prison for some given amount of time and they, they, their time comes up where they can face parole, a parole officer. And, and they studied parole officers and sort of tracked, okay, is there something to uh, this idea of decision-making fatigue. And what they discovered is if you committed a crime and you were the same race and class of another individual and your sentencing was the same as the other individual, that the time of day that you stood before the parole officer had a lot to do with if you got parole or not. And what they discovered is that the earlier in the day that you saw the parole officer, the greater chances you had at getting parole. As the day advanced, the, the judge would presumably be fatigued and he would sort of make decisions out of his rot, sort of um, his gut. Uh, and, and here's the thing, it's not restricted to just judges that uh, former President George Bush, he says this, that typically the decider of any organization 
is more at prone for this risk. That some of us in the face of decision-making fatigue will revert to our guts or will take risks that we would not otherwise take, and other people get overwhelmed and become paralyzed. I'll be really honest with you, your pastor is a paralysis type of guy that in the face of a lot of decisions, like I just sort of shut down and I just sort of need a break. Uh, and, and President Bush was not the only one that they interviewed former President Barack Obama. And he said this about the same topic. You will see that I wear only gray or blue color suits. I'm trying to pare down my decisions. I don't want to make decisions about what I eat or what I wear. And so what he does is, hey, give me a blue or, or, or a gray suit. That's it. I don't want to know. I don't want to choose my meals. I want to save mental stamina for other decisions down the line that, that someone also went on to say what's most illuminating is, is how decision memos were delivered to Obama's desk. And they all had three check boxes at the bottom. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Should we discuss? And this was effective because like always wearing the same suit, these check boxes imposed simplicity. While the decisions are obviously complex, that moved the complex towards simplicity. Think about this. If you bought a home, you know you can log on to Zillow right now. And there are thousands of homes for sale in this area. And you know what you'll do? You'll get frustrated looking at house after house after house after house after house. And you know what you'll eventually do? You'll find a realtor and you'll let a realtor do the work. And what is the realtor going to do? They're going to take these thousands of houses that are out there that you are being bombarded with. And they're going to say, tell me your price point. Tell me what you're looking for. I will do all the hard work and pair this 1000 choices down to three to five. In other words, I'm going to take this thousand and I'm going to weed out 997 and I'm going to give you my best three. Right. The older I get, I see why my dad hated to go to the mall growing up. You go into a department store, there are, are tens of thousands of pieces of clothing, right? It's not just a black shirt. Do I want a black shirt with a button? Do I want cotton or rayon or a blend, right? Are my shoulders broad? Is this shirt tailored, right? Is it a slim fit, right? That, that, that if you go to the mall, studies show you will impulsively spend, the longer you stay in there, the longer you stay in there, you will come home with more stuff and have to take stuff back because you're getting fatigued through the process. And that's why companies like Trump Club, right? That's why they exist. You tell them your measurements, you tell them your style, and you know what they do? They send you a shipment of clothes once a month. What are they doing? They are taking the tens of thousands of pieces of clothing out there and saying, hey, trust us. Here's an outfit that you look great in. <laughs> Why? While the human mind can tackle the complex, God wired us for this need for simplicity. Psalm 1 is a decider's dream. There is no decision-making fatigue from Psalm 1. 
And I know we think our lives are complex, that we have this to become or this to do or this to prioritize. And we can kind of get lost in everything that our lives could be. And what the psalmist does through Psalms 1, it says, you know what? There is really only two ways to live. That's it. Jesus talks like this a lot, doesn't he? He says there is either heaven or what? Hell. It's no in between. It's one or the other. He says there is a broad way that many are on and it leads to destruction and there is a narrow way that few find and it leads to eternal life. He says at the end of the time, the sheep and the goats will be separated. That's it. You're either in the congregation of the righteous or you're not. He says, don't be hot or, he says, be hot or cold, right? Lukewarmness is nothing. It doesn't exist. Jesus is always paring down the complexity of life and putting before you two ways to live. And here is what Psalm 1 says. You got two ways to live, family. A life that matters, a life that will be remembered, a life that has meaning and purpose, a life that prospers not just now but into eternity, or a life that is forgotten and meaningless, futile, and will be judged. There is no middle ground. The psalm, this psalm says, hey, read this and examine your own life. Which path are you on? Because you are on one of them. And so what I want to do is, I think this psalm is beautiful. It helps us pare this thing down. So I want to put a series of questions before you that you can answer on your own or in your homes. My first question to determine which path are you on, do you distance and do you delight? And I'll show you what that means. That this psalm starts with talking about the blessed man or woman. The reason I'm saying man or woman, because that's a collective use of the generic term man. So he's not talking about blessed is the male, but he's talking about blessed is the human, right? But notice how he says that, that word blessed in the Hebrew, it's actually plural, which we, we can't really, I mean, we, it, it's manifold happiness or blessed beyond measure or an intensity of being blessed is the man. And notice how he defines this blessed man or woman. The first definition we get is by what he or she is not. And so look at the beautiful poetry in here. I think there are three different parallels happening. The first one is blessed is a man who does not walk. So you get this image of walking, right? Then you look at what it says. Then there's this image of standing, standing in the same place. And then there's this image of sitting. So notice those, those three things that are in parallel. Blessed is a man who does not walk a certain way, who does not stand in a certain sphere in proximity, who does not sit at a table with a certain type of people, right? But notice also there's another intensity happening, right? He says not in the council, so that's advice. Who walks not in the council, not in the way, who doesn't stand in the way. That's where our ways of living start to look alike. Who does not sit at the seat? And then notice it goes from wicked which is probably wickedness of heart and the way of sinners where, where the active wickedness shows itself in the behavior and then scoffers. 
Those who not only are wicked, who behave wickedly, but who then scoff at what is righteous and what is true. Blessed is the man or woman who distances themselves from listening to the counsel of the wicked, from standing in the way of sinners, from having close fellowship with mockers of God. Now, it might appear that what the psalm is saying is Christians can't spend time with non-Christians and that can't be true for several reasons, right? The first, it doesn't account for what we would call common grace. And here's what I mean. God is kind and gracious even to non-believers. If you're a non-believer in this room, your father in heaven, well, he's not your father, but God in heaven is giving you breath. If he withholds his breath from you, you die. That God the Father is holding your mental faculties together right now. That if at one point he removed his care from you, you'd be insane. Go ask Nebuchadnezzar this, right? So it doesn't mean that, hey, God isn't at work. And, and, and so therefore you can't take advice from unbelieving people. I'll tell you why. Here, here's how I know this isn't literal. Because if you tell me a well-intending Christian over here, and you give me a medical, a trained physician who does not know the Lord and I'm sick in my body. You want to know who I'm betting on a hundred times out of a hundred? I'm going to go see a doctor. And I don't care if you know the Lord, as long as you know the body and you studied and you can help me. Right. So if we take this literally where it says do not take counsel from the wicked, then I mean, think about that. He can't be saying that. He can't be saying, don't take advice from unbelievers. There are unbelieving physicians who might be the best in the world. I want your advice and I want your expertise. It doesn't account for what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5. He says, I wrote to you that you are not to associate with the sexually immoral people. And so in Corinth, they actually thought, okay, Paul, we can't be friends or be near those who are sexually immoral. And so you, they started to isolate themselves in this little holy huddle. And then Paul says, hey, wait, wait, wait. I was not talking about the sexually immoral of the world or greedy or swindlers or idolaters since you would need to go out of the world to escape them. I was talking about those who say they're Christians who are guilty of these things. So you hit what Paul's saying. I told you not to associate with the sexually immoral. But if you really want to try to get away from the sexually immoral, you got to go to Mars. You got to leave the planet. So that can't be what the psalm is saying. It doesn't do justice to the life and ministry of Jesus. He was often called a friend of what? Sinners. You often found him at the table with sinners. You often saw him sitting in a room or in a dinner with sinners. And it doesn't account for the reality that if you're a believer, you are salt and light of the earth. And the Lord does not call us to hide in Christian huddles and, and not engage the world. He says, rather, no, you go engage, be in it and around them, but not be of it and of them. And so how do we apply this passage then? The passage is reminding us all of the danger, the pull, the lure and the power of this world. There has to be this constant awareness of how easy and dangerous it is to drift towards rebellion. What starts with walking in the council in the, the council of sinners and standing in the way of the wicked 
and sitting at a table of mockers, he is showing us the progression that if we're not vigilant about what is feeding our minds and our hearts, about who is shaping and influencing us, about what we're reading and who we're talking to, the danger is there. So he's calling us, right, to be vigilant. Watch who and what is influencing us. I think what the psalmist is pressing against is, is humanism. Humanism is this outlook of, of, or, or system of thought where the, 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 the human thought and mind and, and truth, it trumps the divine. And you see it flushed out in, in really subtle ways. And I want you to have eyes to see it, but you see it even when it comes down to creation. The scriptures clearly say that in the beginning, the Lord created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void. And the Lord God said, let there be light. And there were seven days, six days of creation and one day of resting. And you know what? When you get to your kids around middle school, you know what they're going to start hearing? The Big Bang Theory. And you know what that is? That's humanism par excellence. Why? Because it challenges and it shapes and it usurps the written word of God. God is not powerful. God is not strong. God's truth is not real. And therefore, humanistic thinking and thought, it's all over the world. The Lord says, this is how you care for the orphan, right? This is how you care for the stranger. And humanistic thought, right? If you look at it through the lens of the Bible, they, they're not weak. Send them back, right? The Lord says how we're to care for orphans and widows, but if you don't watch it, right, watch what the world will do with that. It'll flip it. You, we have to always be on guard, always be on guard for these thoughts that, that try to set themselves up against the grace and truth of the Lord. But the scripture doesn't only say that the blessed man or woman is known by what they distance themselves from. They're also known by what they find delight in. And that's what you see in the second line. Blessed is the man who does not do these things. Look at verse two. But his delight, his food is in the law of the Lord. And on the law of the Lord, he meditates day and night. The psalmist outright says, blessed is the man who will not concede to this overinflated view of humanity. Rather, he or she will submit themselves to the Torah, the law of the creator. Psalm one is actually freeing us to be human. And the root word for human shares the same root word for humility and humble, which at the very nature of what we are called, it's one who lives under the authority of another. That's what Psalm 1 is freeing us to do, to not need the success and to not need the congratulatory remarks should not need to please the world, but to live our lives under the gaze of our creator. But Eugene Peterson, who's a Hebrew scholar, he says of the root word from Torah, it is something that is shot like a javelin. And he says the shooter is the Lord. The Bible is the word and the target is our minds. The Bible is the arrow and the target is our minds and hearts. The blessed man or woman is the one who takes delight in his law and his words. 
I love that this opening song, which is, this is the gateway to the Psalms, I think it's actually preparing Christians for two important postures of living. We have to learn to distance, to distance ourselves from the wicked, their lofty arguments, their persuasive speech, their prideful worldview. If we will be faithful to the Lord Jesus Christ, you know what we have to be okay with? Being outsiders in the world and not fitting in any party, not fitting into what society says we ought to be, that our very definition through Psalms, we are blessed when there is a higher authority that we're submitting to and that makes us peculiar on the earth. It makes us hard to pin down because our lot is not here. It's not here. It's not there. Our lot is there. We take marching orders from him. And so we learn the posture of being on the outside. We learn the posture of not being popular. We learn the posture of examining all these things that are coming our way disguised as truth. We learn the posture of being okay with not being popular. But the other part of being a believer is delighting in the word of God. It's not just distancing ourselves from what is evil. It's also finding delight in the word of God. And this is where I think we struggle. I think none of us would say that we're, we're, we're confessing humanist. But if the Lord were to look at our time and our thoughts, would we be practicing humanists who do not live under the scriptures, who do not feast and meditate on the word, who do not let it be shot from the throne room of heaven, the very arrow of the word of God penetrating our hearts and lives, which starts with really prioritizing our days and lives around what is written. I think that's what the psalmist is saying. And notice he doesn't say, hey, have a quiet time every day. He, he's really generic here. But what he does say is the word of God will be meditated upon. And that word meditated is the same word used for a lion in Isaiah as he sort of purrs over his prey. Think about the image. A lion goes and hunts and he gets his prey and he brings it right there and he purrs over it. And he enjoys it and he savors it. That is what the Lord is commending to his people. That we be those who purr over the word. And therefore, I think this psalm is both a call to repent. For not centering some of our lives around the word. And it's a call to action. To laboring by the spirit of God to practice this discipline of meditating. My kids hate to ride with me in a car now. I hit 40 this week. And the older I've gotten, the less I like noise in my car. I just, I don't want to listen to a podcast. I don't want to listen to somebody wax long and eloquent about something. I don't want to hear the news. Man, sometimes you just need to shut stuff down and let that word of God just turn in your mind and turn in your heart. 
We live in, a, in an age where we're overstimulated. There's always new stuff coming out. And I think if we're not really, really careful, we start fixating upon good things, but they're not ultimate things, right? And this Psalm is calling us back to that which is ultimate. It's the living word of God. I love in this text how I, I think the psalmist is putting in there. He's putting incentives before us. Shouldn't we just do it right? The Lord says, blessed is the man who meditates on the law of the Lord day and night. OK, now go do it just because God says go do it. And I don't think that's how this psalm is working. I think the Lord starts to hang on some incentives out there to say, OK, this is what will happen to you if you just do what I'm saying. I mean, think about raising kids when you're potty training kids. We will blackmail them. Right. <laughs> just just don't use it in your diaper. Right. And I'll, I'll give you a snack. Right. We want our kids to start eating vegetables. We, we promise them what on the back end. I'm going to give you some ice cream. Right that we want our kids to start being responsible and doing chores, what do we offer them? We offer them an allowance. Now, here's the thing. Why are we doing these incentives? Because we know as parents, they need something to grab onto. They need something to say, this is why this matters, other than just because I said so. Here's the thing. When you look at God's word, God is always putting incentives out there for his children. He does not tell Abraham, hey, just leave me and follow me because I said so. No, I'm going to make your name great. The kingdoms will come from you. The nations will be blessed because of you. Look, lift up your eyes and see all of this land is yours. The Lord is always attaching incentives to his promises. What do you think he told his son? Just go save him. He says, no, go save him. But I promise you, I will give you a name that is above every name. I will give you the nations as your inheritance. Ask of me. I will give them all to you that at the sound of Jesus, every name will bow and every knee will come. Every knee will bow and every, every tongue will confess. The Lord is always incentivizing his people. Jesus says, repent and believe just because I said so that you might be saved. He's always holding out something to say, these words have weight and therefore you're good and this is the good. And that's the same thing God does here. He doesn't just say, meditate on the law of the Lord because I say so. He actually pushes the image and says, hey, if you do this, this is what you will become. And so the question before us is, what are you becoming? Do you want to become a tree or do you want to become chaff that the wind drives away? Now, what's the incentive? One of the incentives, it is a tree. Look at verse three. The man who delights in the law of the Lord, he is like a tree or will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Now, think about this, right? That some of us believe that this book was actually written when they were in exile that we believe that, that the Psalms, they're written across several hundreds of years and then they're combined and arranged in a certain order. And so it's hard to kind of date which one. Some of them, it's obvious, right? Like Psalm 3, it tells us when this was written and who it was written by. Some of them are ambiguous. Some of us believe that this Psalm was written in exile, that Israel were, they were in Babylon. And this image of he will be like a tree, 
planted by streams of water. That idea of streams of water is this idea of man-made irrigation canals. That there's this great big body of water over here and you're in Babylon and you're feeding your crops. Well, how do you get water from here over there? You irrigate. And so what the psalmist is saying, blessed is the man or woman who's living in exile. They're living in exile. You will be like a tree that's been transplanted right here next to an irrigation canal. Guess what you have access to all the time? Water. And therefore your tree grows even in exile. And guess what? Your leaves don't wither even in exile. And guess what? When it's fruit bearing season, you will have fruit on your tree even in exile. Why? Because you're connected to a source of water. That is what the psalmist holds out to you and I, beloved. Like a tree. Then he asks this beautiful closing sentence. It says, in all that he does, he prospers, or it could be translated, in whatever he or she does, he causes it to prosper. The incentive here is prosperity. Now, consider what this, this first psalm holds out for us. It holds out abundantly blessed or abundantly happy. And in verse 3, prospering in everything she touches. Now, some of you, when you hear those two words together, prosperity and blessing, your inner lawyer starts to go to work. What do you mean prosperity and blessing? This sounds, this sounds like health and wealth teaching. What are you talking about, right? And you try to spiritualize this thing. Well, he's talking about only spiritual blessings. Now, here's why that's really dangerous. Because it says he will prosper in all things that I think we're recovering from and it's not a gospel, it's prosperity teaching, which, which is not a gospel at all, but some of us have been hurt by it. You name it and you claim it and what you name doesn't happen. You sow seeds into my ministry and it comes back to you a hundredfold and it doesn't happen. You name this and you have life and death and the power of your tongue and your kid still gets cancer. And so you've heard this prosperity, health and wealth stuff. And now you're sort of to this point where it, it, it bothers you and you're jaded and you're irritable by it just by hearing the very words. That's not the gospel you've been hearing. Somebody's been pimping the gospel. See, we know that the gospel isn't just about earthly things and it isn't just about earthly success and it isn't just about earthly fame. We know that God is the gospel and we know that he is enough and we know the highest blessings are indeed eternal. That the things that Paul writes about in Ephesians 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And then he, he unpacks this predestining love, this grace, this mercy, this adoption, this sealing by the Spirit. These are the highest and best blessings, beloved, right? And they hide that. They switch this. They make you think that it's the material world. We know enough about the gospel to know that Christians can live with plenty or in want, which is what Paul says. Paul's not denying the fact that there were times where he lived in abundance, but he also suffered for the gospel. And he says, no matter where I am on the spectrum, prosperity or not, freedom or bondage, life or death, I'm in Christ and therefore I'm content. We know all of this, right? But I do think this passage, it is speaking of not just spiritual things, it's physical and emotional. 
And I think what we have to do here is, is to think about the psychology of an abused person that I've counseled people out of abusive relationships. And one of the hardest things for a young lady to grab, right, is if I've been in an abusive relationship, physical or in all the other ways, emotional, and, and that's been two, three years ago. And you fast forward two, three years, and now there's this Christian brother who's pursuing her. She struggles because of the abuse back there. She brings that into her present. And now this other person who is a, 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 a good suitor who is pursuing her in the Lord, she struggles. Why? Because of what happened back there. And here's the thing. This guy didn't do anything. That's how the, we have to approach this passage. Prosperity preachers, they pimp, right? And they harm and they hurt and they taint the image of God. But we have to have enough wisdom to say that what they did was wrong, but that still does not change the character of God. He desires you to be fruitful in your marriage. He desires you to be blessed on your jobs. He desires your relationships to bring joy and happiness to you. He desires these things. He wants these things and not in the way that they made him sing. They just messed it up, right? He's clearly saying that the word of God will transform us from the inside out. It has the power to change you and this present version of you to someone completely different. I'm sure that a lot of you, if not all of you, could reflect on where you were a year ago, five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, and what you care about and love right now does not correlate with what you used to be. And what, what's happening is the Word of God and the Spirit of God are co-working in your heart to make you different and to make you better. You asked me 25 years ago if I would be preaching, I went to church five times in five years. Years, and that was only when I came home and my mama made me. You wouldn't, you, I would laugh at you if you told me I would be opening up the word. I would laugh at you. What's doing that? It's the word of God. It's taking what is and, and it's making us into something beautiful. And that's what the psalmist is saying. The word of God is living and active. You can be like a giant sequoia, a soaring oak on the earth. Now, how does this work? The Lord taught me this really, really early, right? In my faith, the written word, it has the same recreative power as the spoken word, as the living word, that God spoke things into existence with his mouth and his written word can make us like giant trees. But how does it work? I remember when I first started working for GE, I got converted like right before that. And I remember kind of going through all these classes about company etiquette and I'm listening. OK, OK, I get it. You can't get on the Internet. You have to use your key fob and dial in through this secure network. We're going to give you a company credit card. You cannot abuse it. You have to expense everything within a week and you, you can't look at these sites at work. I mean, they're like laying out this list of stuff that they demand. There's another guy who got hired with us and he had uh, he was from a better school. And he let everybody know it, right? And so we get hired and he's bragging and, and about six months into the job, I walked into work and he was getting walked out in handcuffs. 
And I'm looking at Buddy like, man, what happened to you? And later on, it, it came out that he was looking at inappropriate things at work. He was using his company laptop in inappropriate ways. He was running up his credit card. He was in a physically abusive relationship with his girlfriend. She pressed charges and they came to the plant to get him. All of a sudden, I'm reading the scriptures. GE doesn't have to tell me not to steal. <laughs> this book right here already tells me that. They beat you to the punchline. GE doesn't have to tell me how to treat women. Guess what? The book already beat you to the punchline. GE doesn't have to tell me what to look at on their website. The book already beat you to the punchline. It's an image family that when we have an authority higher and greater than us, and these truths seep into our hearts, it changes us. It really does change you. You do life differently. Okay, Pastor, I get it. Yeah, I see. Okay, I follow this book and I prosper. I see it. But what about when life is hard? And it, 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 don't, it doesn't look like I'm prospering. What you got to say about that? The same image of a tree stands. Notice what the text says. You will be like a tree planted by streams of water. Your leaf will not wither. In its season, you will bear fruit. What do we know about trees? They endure winters. Well, the elements are cold. They endure summers where it's hot. They endure winds and they endure trials. And yet the roots are deep and they stand. I will say that to you, family. You might be in a hard place and it might not look like there is fruit on your trees. But you have to remember you're connected to a source that is sustaining you. And when the appropriate time comes for fruit bearing, you know what this psalm says? You will have fruit. You will have fruit. But that's not true for everyone. Look at what it says in verse four. This is not so for the wicked, that they will be like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, while we all know what a tree is, you can kind of look outside and see a lot of trees. We don't know what chaff is, right? That you don't go to Whole Foods and ask for whole wheat and then go home and, and, and get your wheat from a real stalk, right? We're so far down from the, the food supply chain that, that this image, it doesn't stick, it doesn't resonate. And so what I did was I went in and got some wheat, right? Or I, I think it's wheat, right? <laughs> so some of you ladies, y'all did the Jesse tree this year. And I don't know who it was who did this wheat, but thank you. My wife said, hey, I think you can get some from Hobby Lobby. So I went to Hobby Lobby and I got some wheat, right? <laughs> so you can kind of see like the little stalks and that, that, that's grains of wheat on the tips. But it's not edible in this form. And so what they would do is somehow you have to get the wheat out of the stalk. And so you would beat it against something. I'm going to clean this up. I'm going to come back in there, I promise, right? <laughs> but you would beat this, right? And as you beat it, you'll start to see all the stuff just kind of falling off, right? Now, what you can't see out there is there's seeds in there. There's, they're real wheat seeds, right? Now, the problem is that there is a lot of other stuff in here. 
Now, when it says that the, that, that, that the wicked man will be like chaff that the wind drives away, you know what they would have to do once they got the wheat off the stalks? You had all this other stuff, right? This is, you, you can't eat this. It's useless. And so you would discard it, right? You still got more stuff in here that is not living. It's not edible. And so you would have to do it one more time. And what they would do is throw it in the air. And the wind would blow and it would blow away all this other stuff that you can't eat. And you know what will fall back to the ground? The wheat. Now, why would the wheat fall back to the ground? Because it was heavier. There was water inside, right? You know why everything else would not fall to the ground? It had no weight. And here is what the psalmist is saying. You're going to either be a tree that's going to have some deep roots that's going to stand. Or this is what's going to happen to you. The mere breath of a human will blow your life away. That's the decision that God is putting before us all. A tree. Are you going to be chaff that the wind drives away? Now, how do we know? How do we know? I think it helps us to answer this last question. Are you perishing or will you be protected at the final judgment? The little choices we make day in and day out, they are indicative of what will happen at the final judgment. Notice verse five. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment that therefore it is important because what he's doing is pointing us back to what happened in light of the wicked being chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, when the final judgment, the judgment comes, the wicked will not stand. Why will they not stand? Because they're prideful because they have not bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus, because humanism is appealing, because they have set themselves up and against the word of God and the truth of God. Therefore, when they finally meet the Lord Jesus on that day, they will be blown away because of their arrogance and their pride. But notice what it says, not so for the righteous we are known by the Lord. Look at verse five. The wicked will not stand in judgment, nor the sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows us. This isn't just knowing about us. This is intimately connected with us. Now, why? Why will we stand in judgment? Is it because we've had our quiet times? Is it because we've delighted in the word of God? No. If you read this book. Well, you're going to realize we've all stood in the way of sinners. We've all taken the counsel of the wicked. We've all sat at the table of scoffers. You've all, from up here down there, we've all mocked God. The question is, how is it that we will stand in judgment? Because of what Jesus says in Luke 24, what Ochon read, these are my words that I spoke to you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. What Jesus is saying is 
there, the, the, there is one righteous one. There is one truly blessed man, and it's not you or me. He is the fulfillment of this passage. He is the one who truly meditated on the law of the Lord day and night. He is the one that is the tree planted by streams of water that bears its fruit. He is the one who endured a brutal winter, the winter of God's judgment and wrath. He was the one cut off, and guess what? He's your hope and peace. He's the one the psalm is talking about. And through your union with him by faith, by realizing that you aren't the one who's done this perfectly, but he has, and he has paid for your iniquity on a cross, that what this book will do, if you read it on its own terms, it's going to be like crumbs that, 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 th that are thrown down that's going to lead you to your sin, to your sin, to your sin, to God's wrath, and then it's going to lead you to your Savior who has died in your place at a cross. God made him who knew no sin to become sin that we in him might become the righteousness of God. This word, when read, family, it must convict you, but it will point you to Jesus, the hero of the Bible. And so this word, family, it's going to cut and convict, but it's going to save and it will sanctify you. So I'll close with this. How are you spending your time? Are you putting down roots in the word? Are you being transformed? You might not always feel like you're growing, but growth is happening. God's word is alive. If you aren't delighting in the word, thinking about it, chewing on it, the psalmist would say you're hurting yourself. If we aren't letting the arrow of the word of God pierce our minds and hearts, we will live on our own wisdom and thoughts and emotions. And so I commend to you to start small. Commit to hearing the word of God on Sundays. Commit to talking about it. Commit to getting a Bible you can understand. Commit to simply listening to the word of God read in your car as you commute. Commit to joining the James 5 scripture memory group that's about to meet in the youth center right now to memorize James 5 together over the summer. Let the word of God dwell richly in you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word and thank you for being the truly righteous one. Thank you that we are righteous in Christ. Thank you that he is our hope and our peace. And thank you that the same word that saves us and has saved us by pointing us to Christ is the same word that is used by your spirit to sanctify us. Father, my prayer for us is that we would be soaring oaks on the earth, that our roots would go deep into your word, that we would prosper in all things, not just in an earthly way, but in a way that honors and adorns the gospel of the Lord Jesus. We love you and bless you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.